exit and I'm uncertain when to enter, so <laughs> I think we sort of got it worked out there. Philippians chapter 3, Philippians chapter 3, we're going to begin at verse 1 today, and I understand you use the English Standard Version, at least in the Pew Bibles. There's so many different versions, and don't you hate it when you're reading one version and somebody standing next to you is reading from a different version, much louder than you are? It just kind of drains you out, and you're not quite sure where to go. So Philippians chapter 3, thank you for the privilege of being at First Baptist Haverhill. Your pastor is a gracious man. He's a great scholar, pastor, preacher. We've invited him to come and speak at North Point Bible College, and we want to thank you on behalf of North Point for allowing us to hold our graduation in this historic sanctuary. It worked out really well for us. And I asked myself, why didn't we do this before? I don't know. We had been renting tents for a while. It cost about $10,000 to hold a tent, uh, rent a tent big enough to hold our graduation. And it rained every time. Every time. Because it's toward the end of April, 1st of May. And here we're having these graduations. So we gave that up and started driving all the way to uh, Shrewsbury for, to hold our graduations there. That's a, a long drive. They have a nice Mexican restaurant there. But other than that, it was really aggravating to drive that far for our graduations. And this worked out really well. Maybe we can have an ongoing relationship when we discovered the church, we've added to this church to our spiritual heritage tour, and that's because of Rich Perron, who knows the history of the church. The, the history of this church and the history of First Church in Bradford goes so far back in the history of the colony that we had to add it, and I'd done some research, looked it all up, and was shocked to find that my first theology book, Systematic Theology, as a freshman student at Central Bible College, way back when, was written by the, one of the pastors of this church, Augustus Strong. I still have that book. I need a magnifying glass to read it now because the print is so very small. That theology book is thicker than the Bible. And I'm not exaggerating. I still have it. I just packed it up to move it. The thing is heavy-duty theology. So I want to just stop right now and apologize to Pastor Strong, Dr. Strong, for whatever I'm going to say today if it does not line up with his thick, systematic theology. I did study it, reviewed it. I think I even passed it on to my wife when she came as a college student, carried that thing around. I highlighted it so many times it's hard to read it some places. So again, thank you, Pastor, for the opportunity to be here. Thank you, uh, uh, Pastor Strong and the founding pastor of the church, who I, I, as I understand it, the term firebrand was used to describe him. I'm not sure what that means, but I'll do my best today to be a firebrand similar to the founding pastor of First Baptist. Did you know I started singing in the Baptist choir when I was in high school? I attended an Assemblies of God church, but then I went to choir and well the Baptist church started their service on Sunday night at 6 o'clock it seems the God church started at 7 o'clock so I could do two services in an evening including singing in the choir I'm a really bad singer <laughs> and as to why I would sing in a choir well one I have a friend who's a Baptist minister he would always invite me to come to sing beside him in the choir but there were also some attractional features in that choir that were not in the baritone bass section of the, the choir, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> Went to my high school reunion 
a few years back, and I'm at the table for the reception. I'm seated next to my Baptist friend. We're going through the yearbooks that were on the table. And I said, you know, I need to confess to you. I didn't really come to sing in the Baptist choir next to you because we were such good friends. It's because I was really interested in one of these young ladies. And here's her picture. It was in our yearbook right there. And he said, you know, she's seated right next to you. We won't pursue that any further, but I would not have known if he had not told me. The ravages of time. We'll just stop it right there. She probably would say the same thing. You know, who is he? So, Philippians chapter 3, beginning of verse 3. For we are of the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness under the law, I was blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Phillips, a minister, shares this story. I hope it's apocryphal, but I'm not sure. In a conversation with a person I recently met, I asked, are you a Protestant or a Catholic? To which my new acquaintance said, I'm a Protestant. I am too, I said. What franchise? To which the man answered, I'm a Baptist. Me too, I said. I asked, Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? He replied, Northern Baptist. Well, me too. To which, continuing back and forth, I finally asked this question. Are you a Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1878? And he responded, I'm a Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912, to which I said, die, heretic, die. (laughs) Religion is this funny thing that can separate people, can cause us to bicker and fight and throw stones at one another. You go through New England, you find that people have been very religious in this region. The churches that have been built, the campgrounds that have been constructed and used to draw tens of thousands of people, amazing. There's this hunger in the part of humans for something more. And people can fill it with, try to fill it with religion. And in New England, I'm convinced that one of the biggest religions has to do with patriots, and I'm not talking about the people who fought England. Sports programs. And if you didn't figure this out, there are some people who are looking for messianic figures in the political arena. 
And so for them, their politics is a form of religion. It's divisive. It separates people. Just think of what people do to try to fill what Pascal has been attributed as calling it a vacuum, a God-shaped vacuum. He never said it quite that way, but he did describe an innate longing that only God can satisfy and fill that is in every human being. The problem is how people go about trying to fill that vacuum or that longing. Religion, sports, politics, pursuit of money, whatever it may be, it will never satisfy. And yet, here we are. Religion is this strange thing. It's selfish. It can be very self-centered. Whereas relationship is selfless and self-sacrificing. Religion is static and stultifying. Relationship is dynamic and life-giving. Religion involves whited sepulchers full of dead men's bones. Relationship involves a stone tomb emptied by a glorified Lord. Religion is known for its musty, dusty orthodoxy. And I would consider myself an orthodox minister that holds to the traditions of the faith, to the teachings of Scripture, and to Augustus Strong's systematic theology. And yet relationship is known for its hearty, healthy orthopraxy, where one is straight belief, the other one is straight practice. And you have to have both. Can I add one more? Orthopathos, straight feeling. If we could combine all of that, an old minister, C.M. Ward, you probably don't know who he is unless you used to listen to the Revival, radio, Revival Time radio broadcast. It was on 600 ABC radio stations in the past. He used to make this statement. If we could get the Baptist water and the Pentecostal fire together, we would have steam and we could really go someplace. Whereas religion may be characterized by the noisy emotionalism and hype, doesn't make it any more superior than the other forms. Relationship is characterized by the hum of the God's turbines generating the power from a true divine source. Religion is fleshly and carnal. Relationship is spirit and might. Religion is darkness and night, whereas relationship is the sun's light. Religion is a drudgery. Relationship is delight. I don't know if you noticed this or not, but in church, there's two times. There's regular time where you're checking your watch, thinking to yourself, how long is he going to go? And then there's revival time where the word is being delivered. It's striking fire in your heart. You feel the vitality of what God is saying to you down in the depths of your soul. And when it's wrapping up and over, you say to yourself, already? We're we're shooting for the last one today. Religion can be nothing more than ritual, whereas relationships should be reviving. Saul was a religious man. And I said that that way on purpose. Saul was a religious man. He was confident in the flesh. You see that in verse 4 of what we read. He was dutifully circumcised the eighth day according to the prescriptions of his religion. He was a chosen from the tribe of Israel. Tribes of Israel. In fact, he was so specific, he was from the tribe of Benjamin. He was, and he actually uses this phrase, 
phrase, I was a Hebrew's Hebrew. If anybody was religious, I was religious. And he adds this, I was a minute observer of the law, a Pharisee. And if you need a refresher course in your theology, there were Sadducees who didn't believe in angels, they didn't believe in the supernatural, they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead, so they were sad, you see. Whereas the Pharisees believed in miracles and the resurrection of the dead, and they did believe in the possibilities of the Messiah coming, they just didn't believe in Christ, and so they were fair, you see. They were minute observers of the law, however. And these are the ones that tended to be very self-righteous and very judgmental. These would be the people that Christ would describe as being white and sepulchers full of dead men's bones. The Apostle Paul identifies himself that way. He was zealous to the point of persecuting those he thought were heretics. He uses the term, I persecuted the church. I persecuted those who believed in Jesus Christ, chasing them down, even... Standing and observing the stoning of Stephen. That's how religious he was. His religion drove him to do these things. His religion drove him to hate people. Outwardly righteous. He was faultless observer of the legalistic rules of his religion. As far as religion was concerned, Saul had it all. But he did not have it all. In the midst of all the legalistic adjudication, all the theological disputation, there was not God. That's what I'd like to say to some of the people in some of the churches I've visited in New England. I see that you're going through the motions, but where's God? We take on the spiritual heritage tours that we go to. We go to big churches in Boston, historic churches in Boston and they tie it more to patriotic history than they do to a visitation of God. We go to the campgrounds, Martha's Vineyard, some of the other locations where the little cottagers are still built, where they used to attract 10,000 people to come out of the city of Boston to spend a week worshiping God, and today they're just museum pieces. Where is God? The churches, we had dinner with the president of the George Whitfield Bible College in South Africa. And I made a mistake and said something about George being Presbyterian. And the president said to me, he was never a Presbyterian. He was an Anglican minister all of his life. And I said, oh, well, okay, I, I understand. But we've got his body, and it's in the basement of a Presbyterian church in Newburyport. So there which prompted him to get up immediately from our dinner, go out to his car and bring back in the biography of George Whitfield he'd recently written. So now I have to moderate that. We have the body of George Whitfield, an Anglican minister, buried in the Presbyterian Church in Newburyport. This is the same man who preached this region, preached in the churches in this region, maybe have even preached in this church, calling people to repentance. Except a man be born again, he will perish without Christ. So in the midst of all of the rites and the rituals, there was not God. In the midst of all of the buying and the bleeding and the burning of the sacrifices, there was not God. Saul was worshiping in a temple over which God had inscribed the word Ichabod, which means the spirit has departed. How sad is that to worship in a place where the spirit is gone? 
You're just going through emotions. He worshiped at a temple where the glory had departed because there was no God in that location. Now, I understand the omnipresence of God. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the manifest presence of the glory of God. But this same religious man on a road of religious rage ran into the glory, ran into that God. He was blinded by the resplendent glory of of heaven. He fell beneath the weight of heaven's glory. Let me just stop and help you with this word glory. The word glory means more than a shout of praise where you say, oh, glory. It's much more than that. Historically, the word glory in Hebrew would refer to the Shekinah glory of God. When we're talking about the glory, we're talking about the manifest, tangible presence of God. And the word has two aspects to it. In the Greek, Paul says, God dwells in unapproachable light. Could also be said, he dwells in unapproachable glory. His glory is so resplendent. It is so magnificent. It would blind you, if not kill you. But there's another aspect to it, which is interesting. I've never taken this. I'm not sure what light weighs. But glory has a heaviness to it. So you'll see that where the Shekinah glory is, there's a heaviness as well as a brightness. It, It sounds like I'm contradicting myself. But that's what you find encompassed in this term. So when Paul, on the road of rage toward Damascus to persecute the church, is confronted by the glory of God, he's confronted by a resplendent brightness that blinds him. And the assumption next is he's in the dust because of the weight of the glory of God who's now manifest. God, do it again in our midst. He heard a heavenly voice saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And again, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And Saul, whose name was changed to Paul, was never the same again. He was changed because of that encounter with the divine glory of God. And a revaluing takes place. You see this in verse 7. Things that were profit to him in the past... His religious traits and practices were now lost to him. Like a sailor seeking to save his sinking ship, Paul begins to jettison or throw overboard the precious cargo. It's no longer meaningful to him. All of the carnal advantages, all of the privileges of his birth, all the privileges of his religious practice, his religion, his race, his law observance, his zeal, His outward blamelessness suddenly became worthless and even harmful to him. In the light of Christ's glory, Paul suddenly saw cockroaches go scurrying, the cockroaches of his religious practice. He was horrified to see that he had been vermin, had been feeding on the rubbish of his religion. He actually uses some interesting words in the Greek text. Compared to the sinless savior, Savior, Paul realizes that his piety was putrid, almost gangrenous. If you know anything about gangrenous tissue, if you don't remove it, it'll kill the whole body. 
And for Paul, this is no passing whim, getting rid of things that are no longer important, pushing it aside as he pursues what is truly important and truly significant. This became a way of life for Paul. Look at verse 8. With an intensifying force, Paul adds an unusual Greek phrase. New International translates it this way. What is more? King James Version says it, yea, doubtless, and. The Expositor's New Testament, Greek New Testament, puts it this way. Nay, that is a feeble way of expressing it. I can go further and say that I consider everything loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus. And then Paul broadens this all out to include everything, not just the religion of his past, not just of his racial heritage. He's saying everything is unimportant. There's no thing, no experience that can be compared with knowing Christ. This knowledge, and the word that he uses in the Greek is gnosko, which is to know, but it's not just head knowledge. One of the things that scares me to death is being the president of a Bible college and seminary is that we could train a whole bunch of people who know about God, but do not know him. And there's a big difference. You can fill the pulpits of our churches with people who know about God, but do not know him. That was George Whitfield's number one concern as he traveled through America. We had developed a theology in this area which allowed for a person to be a minister without having had a professed salvation experience. It didn't matter. As long as you said the right words from the pulpit, everything was okay. As long as you said the right words at baptism and communion, everything was okay. You did not have to be a believer in Jesus Christ. That's one of my biggest fears, is I graduate students with ministerial degrees who do not know him, who cannot give evidence of a firsthand saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And here, Paul broadens this all out. He says it is a knowledge that is gained through a one-on-one encounter. Gnosko, it's a more than head knowledge. It is experiential knowledge. Uh, The Old Testament uses the term Adam knew Eve, and they had children. It's an intimacy with God. So it's not an intimate knowledge about God, but it's an intimate knowledge of interacting with him, knowing him personally. What a tragedy to know about him, but not to know him. Look at verse 8. Christ Jesus, humble, uh, excuse me, of um, chapter 2 of Philippians. Christ Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And in this case, the glory is referencing the Father's magnificence. And Paul confessed Jesus Christ was his Lord. Notice verse 8. He adds, compared to the surpassing greatness. This is, uh, in, the, in the Greek, this is uh, hupo. This is, I don't know how to explain that other than to say, this is, this is the big stuff. This is hupo. We would say super. This is super. It surpasses everything else. The greatness and the excellency of knowing Christ Jesus is so far above everything else. And now he uses another word in the Greek. It's skubala. Everything else compared to knowing Christ Jesus is rubbish. 
is garbage. It is sewage by comparison to knowing Christ. The number one priority of your life should be to know Christ Jesus and him intimately, experientially. And may that knowledge continue to increase and grow day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year. All confidence in the flesh is cast aside. I can say this to you, that I visited many churches in the last few years as a pastor. I visited one really large church in the Midwest. Uh, they were building an $80 million sanctuary. Uh, I did not stutter, did I? $80 million sanctuary. And as I attended that service, I was sitting there with my mouth open. It was run impeccably well. The choreography was astounding. Nobody skipped a beat. Nobody misspoke. Everything was precise. And this actually happened. At a right moment, this one wall that was all glass, the blinds came down. They went on with the point of the service. And another moment, the blinds went up. And you could see the pond that this large church owned. And as the blinds went up, now, understand, some of this may have been my imagination, but ducks flew in and landed on the pond. And I'm thinking to myself, how did they do that? Somebody's out there saying, cue the ducks. <laughs> Everything was done so well. They had a drama. They had announcements. Everything was done so well. The, the Pastor, it's almost like the lights change depending on what point he was on in his sermon from blue. And then when he's really hot, red. And I'm not making that part up. This was really happening. I'm thinking, wow. And while I'm sitting there, this thought came to me. What if God showed up? Do you know what I'm saying? What if they moved to the point that they're choreography was disrupted by a manifest presence of God. And then I began to cry. In all of the choreography of these beautiful churches, I'm not opposed to that, but we must have God in the midst of it all. The world doesn't need any more ostentatious opinions. It needs Jesus. The world does not need more lilting love songs. It needs Jesus. One of my pet peeves is when a song never gets around to mentioning the cross, the blood, Christ, the sacrifice, the resurrection. In fact, I'm convinced that some space aliens could land and come to our churches and they would be convinced we worship pronouns because we never get around to defining who he is. The world doesn't need any more pop psychologies. It needs Jesus. The churches don't need any more seminars on communication and leadership. It, they need Jesus. More than classes on stress management, the world needs Jesus. And please don't misunderstand. I'm not opposed to these things, but we must give them Jesus. The world will not be impressed by our expansive theological vocabularies, but they will be impressed by Jesus in a church that lives out their faith in the marketplace. J.H. Jowett has written, the cardinal element in spiritual knowledge is not a well-arranged theology, but a religious experience. 
a well-arranged theology may be like a herbalist dry museum, while a religious experience has about it the life and beauty and fragrance of a well-watered garden. May our churches be gardens. May God show up and manifest himself. Religion can be very self-centered, but what we need today is Christ Jesus. Paul adds a phrase that just haunts me. As he wraps up this section of this passage, he says that I may know him, that I may know him. You know, he's gone through all of this explanation and now he's saying that I may know him. He's knowing him, but he's saying, I want to know him more. May I know him. Even to the point of fellowshipping in his sacrifice, in his death and his resurrection. May I know him. May I know him. May I experientially know Christ Jesus. May that be your heart cry. May that be the cry of the church. May I know him. I want to know him. I want to know him the way Moses knew him, this God that we serve. It was Moses who had been dialoguing with God. It was Moses to whom God gave the Ten Commandments. He kind of messed that up and had to go back for a second edition. But this was Moses. This was the Moses to whom God appeared in a burning bush. Somewhere along the way, like Paul, Moses began to say, it's not enough. Show me your glory. Oh God, show me your glory. Let me see your glory. And God made it very clear, I cannot unveil my glory. It'll kill you. You wouldn't be able to sustain it. But I will do this for you. I'm going to take you and I'm going to place you in the cleft of the rock. A split rock. I'm going to put you in the cleft of this rock. I'm going to cover you over with my hand. I'm going to pass by. And after I have passed by, I'm going to let you see my receding glory. That's really hard for me to wrap my mind around. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a child of uh, Tom and Jerry cartoons and the Roadrunner. And so I'm trying to process this, this theological concept of receding glory. And the best I could ever come up with is... You know those streaks behind the Roadrunner on the cartoons? You know, you don't see the Roadrunner, but you see the stuff behind him. Kind of like the pixie dust. So God says, you would not be able to stand it if you could see me full on. But I will place you in the cleft of the rock. I'll pass by, and then I'll let you see my receding glory. Some versions say my hinder parts. But it is, I'll let you see my receding glory. And you know, that was enough that after that encounter, Moses' face radiated. It reflected the glory. Not the full-on glory, just the receding glory. Now, in Cecil B. DeMille's depiction of Moses, his hair also changed color. You know, his hair, head, hair turned white, his beard turned white, but you have to communicate it somewhere. So here he is coming down from the mountain, and he puts a veil over his face so people don't look full on to him. They can't see the glory dissipating from his face. But imagine that. One glimpse of his dear face. 
and all life's miseries will be erased. The glory. I want to know him. I want to say, God, show me your glory. May I know your glory. I want to know him as Isaiah the prophet knew him. In the year the king Uzziah died, Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, sitting on a throne, and his train filled the temple. And the burning ones, the angels, the seraphim, whose sole job is to surround the throne, and day and night they cry out, not love, 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 not grace, grace, grace. They cry out a preeminent characteristic of this God of glory. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Isaiah's response was, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I would dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. I'm an undone sinner. But God, in his mercy, in spite of his holiness, shows grace and love. I want to know him. The way Peter, the fisherman, talk about a man that knew how to catch fish, as well as suffered from foot and mouth disease, Peter was it. He had been out fishing all night. You know that if you're going to catch the fish, you throw the nets out at a certain time. You catch the fish, haul them in. But after a night of fruitless fishing, here is the master fisherman encountered by a carpenter who says to him, I'll tell you how to catch fish. Throw your net out on the other side. Hey, that's my trade. You're the carpenter. But if you say so, he throws the net out and the net is so full it's breaking. Peter, at that moment, recognizes this is not an ordinary encounter. This is an encounter with the God of very God. This is Messiah. This is the one for whom we have been looking. And he drops to his knees in the middle of that boat, and he cries out, my God. I want to know him the way Thomas knew him. He skipped church. Never skipped church. He skipped church, so he missed it when the post-resurrection appearance of Christ when he appeared to the disciples. So when they went to him and said, we have seen the resurrected Christ. Nah, come on. We call him Doubting Thomas. He's also known as Didymus, which means there's two of them. He's a twin. I don't believe it. In fact, I will not believe that he is resurrecting the dead until I put my hand in the nail prints of his hand and the thrust of the spear into his side. I, I just won't believe it. One week later, in an upper room with a closed door, suddenly the air turned celestial. In, I can't say walked, he just appeared. The resurrected Christ, Thomas. You need proof? Reach out. Touch me. The Bible doesn't say he ever touched him. The Bible does say that he cries out, My Lord and my God. I want to know him the way Thomas knew him. I want to know him in the power of his resurrection so that I too might attain unto the resurrection from the dead. Is that your desire? Is that your wish? Is that the desire of First Baptist Haverhill, Massachusetts? Pastor Strong, I hope I've done well. 
calling people to the cross, to Christ, to the God of glory. For it's in his name we preach, we pray, proclaim, and we pray.